Good morning. Welcome again, everyone. Those of you here in the sanctuary, across the street in the chapel, anyone joining us online, welcome again. My name is Nathan Nelson. I'm the Associate Director for Mission and Outreach here at Bethany, and it's my pleasure to be teaching here this morning. This morning, we're beginning a six-week series entitled Encounters with Christ, in which each of the six weeks will be looking at unique encounters that people from the book of Luke have with Jesus and consider together the implications that these kind of unique experiences with Jesus have for us as we seek to engage with God in our world today. But before we do that, um, before we hop into our text for this morning, which comes to us from Luke chapter 4, verses 38 to 44, let's pause and pray together. God, what a gift it is to be here, gathered as a people, simply to listen to your voice. We ask, God, that you would help our hearts to be in a posture of prayer and and humility before you such that we might hear you and evermore be transformed as we encounter you to be people of your kingdom. God, both as a church and as individuals. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, current research is revealing that Seattle is home to more churches per capita than other major cities across the country. However, this is interesting, church attendance in Seattle is lower across the board uh, than other major cities with fewer churches per the population size. So what this means is that Seattle has many empty buildings on Sunday morning. Interestingly, research being done to understand the contributing factors of this phenomenon of like church vacancy seems to be uh, suggesting that rather than an aversion to the church, what people are doing is saying church is a good thing for those people over there, but the primary means to which folks are seeking community and sort of a sense of purpose is in places other than the church. So people are finding community in places like CrossFit gyms, right, and yoga studios, and like puppy playtimes, and all kinds of things. And these are all good things, absolutely. I can testify to this in my own life. Um, Obviously, I work in the church. I find community in the church, but I also find it um, in other places. And one of those is a, a newer thing to my wife, Macy, and I. She's sitting here in the front row. We recently got a new puppy. Our puppy's name is Kodiak. And um, I don't know, I'll butcher this statistic, but in a city like Seattle, there's like more puppies per family than children or something like that. Have you heard this? Yeah. So um, receptive community to puppies by and large. And man, is that true. We've been walking this little fluff ball around town. And when we do that, people just like flock to us like never before. And they're trying you know, they do that kind of courteous thing, like, oh, hi, what's your name? Can I pet your dog? And you're like, before you even tell them your name, they're just blah, all absorbed in this little, and you, you can't help it, right? But uh, the reality is, uh, well, yeah, okay, I confess. I did create a, um, an Instagram account for my puppy. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm not here to promote his account, but I will say that he's getting a lot of momentum in the Instagram world. And... Uh, Remarkable, remarkable community. Like, they're, we're not the only people who do this. There's other people that create accounts for their animals online. And um, something discovered is that we are now part of the many Australian shepherds 
community on Instagram. Like, who knew that even existed? It does, and in a large kind of way. Um, now, uh, one of the things that we've been discovering as we've been parading this guy around town is this thing in Seattle that I call the puppy effect. So let me show you what I mean. That's it. Instant connection, right? Absolutely. By way of puppies, we find community. By way of CrossFit, by way of yoga, all these things, we find community. Absolutely, amen, we should. But here's the thing. As followers of Christ, we all, at a level, have to consider what is the significance of the church in the midst of all of this. That is, the church, we have a calling to embody the character of Christ in such a way that we are testifying to the inbreaking kingdom of God. Amen? And while all of these other things are fantastic, we have to ask the question in the midst of a reality in Seattle of literally church vacancy, how is it that we are called to evermore embody Christ in such a way that we're not just kind of another menu item of ways that people find community, but we ourselves embody nothing less than Jesus' reign here on earth. And that's why I believe this series entitled Encounters with Christ is so critical. CrossFit's amazing, yoga is amazing, co-ops, amazing, right? These things help us build healthy bodies, combat perpetual consumerism, experience community, but the church gathered, as in all of us here this morning, or perhaps you serve at the community meal here at Bethany throughout the week, or you're part of a small group, the church gathered, as well as the church sent. So all of us in our places of employment, in our families, everywhere we go outside of these walls, we share the calling to embody the reign of God here and now. So what we'll see in our text this morning and throughout this series is the critical importance of genuine encounter with God such that we cannot be simply another menu item of ways to experience community, but that together we might embody Jesus' reign here and now. We have to be a people of genuine encounter with Christ for this to be possible. So let's turn to our text for this morning, which comes to us again from Luke chapter 4, verses 38 to 44. We heard it read just moments ago. And what we're presented with here is an encounter between Peter and Jesus. Peter, of course, is one of the 12 disciples. And Peter's expectations get flipped on their head here. And I believe it's an instructive word both for him and for all of us as we seek to engage with our sense of calling, our sense of purpose in the world. So in your bulletin this morning, um, there's an outline where we'll explore three main points through the lens of Peter's encounter with Jesus. First, that we're all called for a purpose. Second, a section I've titled Discovering Intimacy, Discovering Our Purpose, in which we're going to unpack the critical importance of fostering intimacy with Jesus such that we're able to both discern and then stay true to our calling. And then finally, we'll conclude with a reflection upon our collective call to embody Christ both as individuals and the church, and in so doing, become agents of God's kingdom in the world today. So, let's begin with this notion that we're all called for a purpose. And we've got to set the stage here for Peter's encounter with Jesus a bit. 
Peter's encounter with Jesus that we're going to look at comes at the end of Luke chapter 4, following uh, what I'm going to break down as sort of three separate days. Okay, so we have three days in Luke chapter 4, the encounter coming at the end. So let's first set the stage for um, leading up to this encounter. So beginning on day one, here we go. Luke 4, 16, near the outset of Jesus' roughly three-year ministry, he returns to his hometown of Nazareth, where he enters the synagogue, church, just, you know, not exactly like this one, but a church, and he begins to preach. And in Luke 4, 18 to 19, we get the sort of thesis statement of Jesus' ministry in which he articulates his sense of calling. So he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read this. Verses 18 and 19, the, Lord, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what Jesus is doing here is articulating an image of the kingdom of God, as well as his purpose, which is to proclaim the reign of God. God's power over oppression, his power over sickness, liberation for perpetual cycles of brokenness in our world. And the question is, how then do the people of Nazareth react? Some of you know the story. Verse 28, all the people having heard this in the synagogue were furious. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So, Jesus says, this is my purpose for which I was sent. Nazareth says, let's kill him. Tough day at the office, right? This is day one. Day two. Upon leaving Nazareth in Luke 4.31, Jesus goes down to the city of Capernaum in Galilee, where he again begins preaching in another synagogue. And what we're about to see is that this is the beginning to yet another profoundly busy day of ministry for, for Jesus, for his disciples. So, he preaches in the morning. Luke 4.35, he rebukes a demon out of a man. Luke 4.38, having preached, just rebukes the demon. He gets invited to Simon Peter's home for lunch. And this is a bit of a sort of bait-and-switch situation. It's like, come for the lunch, stay for the healing. So Simon Peter's mother-in-law, profoundly sick, uh, needs healing, so Jesus heals her. Then, as the sun begins to go down, people start hearing about this, and they start bringing their sick, bringing the demon possessed to Jesus to be healed. Uh, so Jesus goes about uh, doing exactly that, beginning healing the crowds. And if you're thinking in terms of, like, the day of, in the life of a pastor, let's sort of recount this. You have... Um, travel after a difficult board meeting the night before, right? Like, literally, we're going to kill you, man. Like, I don't like what you just said to us. To now be a guest speaker in a church, you preach in the church, and then you're invited to someone's house for lunch, and you're thinking, great, you know, how hospitable of this place. Kind of take it easy. No, someone's actually dying at this house, and it's going to be a really uh, rough lunch in which we're called to pray and those kind of things. Good. Okay, we made it through lunch. Uh, now we can relax. No, uh, impromptu book signing. Like the entire church, they've come to you. They've got, they're like, yay, you know, let's just do this here. And by the way, you know, we have sick loved ones too. And so now you've got crowds of people waiting for you, more work to be done, 
busy day. You get it, right? Like if you're a college student, perhaps, um, graduation just happened. Maybe there's some college students still left among us. But imagine you've got graduation weekend. And so like your parents are in town. And if you're like me, you had ring by spring. So you're engaged. So you had your future in-laws in town. And that's an added element. Uh, and then, like, of course, who finishes finals on time? You've asked for extensions in all your classes so you could, like, I don't know, propose or something like that. Um, and so now you've got a couple final exams due um, after graduation, and, like, you're applying for grad school. So you have to have that grad school application in all in 48 hours. Like, busy, 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 busy day. Okay, sun goes down on day two, day three. In light of this crazy day, growing popularity in the town of Capernaum, more people waiting to see Jesus, what does he do? He withdraws to a solitary place. Beginning in Luke 4.42, we read that at daybreak he departed and went to a deserted place. The crowds were looking for him, and when they reached him, they wanted to prevent him from leaving. But he said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other cities also, for this is the purpose for which I was sent. So he leaves and continues proclaiming the message in synagogues throughout Galilee. Now in a parallel passage, so kind of uh, uh, just a different accounting of the same experience in Mark chapter 1, we read, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place, and it adds, And he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replies, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. For this is why I've come. Now, if you're like me, or perhaps like Simon Peter, his response would appear utterly contrary to conventional wisdom, right? Like, conventional wisdom would say, Jesus, your work here is not finished. There's more sick people to heal. There's more demons to cast out. There's people literally knocking at the door to see you. And now, here you are, having withdrawn, and you're saying, it's time to go. I'm going to leave. Like, what are you doing? I'll put this in uh, basketball terms for you. I'm a big basketball fan. Um, like if you're the Golden State Warriors, you've won a few championships, right? And so you've got four all-stars in your starting lineup and you're looking at the next year ahead and you're like, you know, we might as well for an insurance policy just double down here. Let's get a fifth all-star. Spoiler alert, Boogie Cousins is now on the Warriors. So now you have five all-stars in your starting lineup. You're literally never going to lose another game at that point, right? Like the rest of the NBA should just not even show up. And I don't want to speculate here, but perhaps like if Jesus were to go to the Golden State Warriors, um, if he were to be recruited, um, might he say, hey, you know, let's, it's time to go. It's time to move on to a new town. Like maybe Kevin Durant, why don't you head back to Seattle and start this team called the Seattle Supersonics or something like that. Pure speculation. Now, This point is exacerbated by the fact that just prior, remember this, on day one, quote-unquote, Jesus had experienced the exact opposite of this sense of popularity in Nazareth. So here's Peter to Jesus. Look, man, Capernaum, things are going great. We have success. 
Don't you remember what happened in Nazareth? Like literally, people tried to kill you, man. Shouldn't we at least hang out here for a little bit longer, heal a few more people, cast out a couple more demons? But here you are withdrawn to a quiet place when there's still work to be done. And Jesus says to Peter, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other cities also, for this is the purpose for which I've come. And here, Jesus defies Peter's expectations, right? He defies conventional wisdom to remain true to his sense of calling, which he articulated both in Nazareth and yet again in Capernaum, which was that thesis statement I I read for you, to declare the kingdom of God. This is the purpose, Christ says, for which I've come. So beautifully, despite rejection or popularity, Jesus remains committed to his calling, to his sense of purpose. He's not defined by the approval or the disapproval of others, nor is he a slave to this sort of reactionary state to all the presenting needs before him, people that needed healing, lots of needs, and yet Jesus is able to somehow remain true to his sense of call, even in the face of that. And I believe there's an important subtext here, so um, bear with me just for a minute, but I do think it's important to note that Jesus invested deeply, both in Nazareth and in Capernaum. This is not to say that, like, I've heard people say before, you know, Jesus, you're God, God is love, these people need healing, like, if you're love, you're going to heal them. Like, this this is a kind of a, people come up against this all the time. The reality is, Jesus invested deeply in both those places, right? We talked about what a busy day it was. I really do believe that um, it was Jesus' joy to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to be amongst the people. He's not withdrawing here out of a sense of weariness where, oh, I just can't keep doing this. In the same way as pastors, I can tell you it's a privilege when we get invited to speak other places, to speak here at the church, to go and to share with you all in moments of profound challenges in your life, of moments of joy in your life, it is a blessing to do that. And the reality is that all of us in the room experience seasons in whatever vocation we have to invest deeply, right? There's times where we have to work hard, we work long hours, and that's good. But in the face of that, the question remains, when is enough enough? How do we know when enough is enough? There's always more people to heal. There's always more to do. If you work at Amazon, I know I have a brother who works there. There's always more hours to work. So how do we know when enough is enough? And the answer to this question, I believe, is by knowing our calling, knowing who we were created to be. And the only way that we know our calling is by knowing Jesus. And believe me, as someone who's passionate about many causes of justice in the world and, you know, my role here at the church is in the space of mission and helping us think about how we as a church can ever more be a part of God's justice in the world. And I'm staying attuned to the news. I'm also constantly inundated by emails. Like, I kid you not, every week my inbox is full of organizations that are saying, hey, we want to partner with Bethany. We'd love to partner with Bethany on this cause here, on this cause here, in this part of the world, in that part of the world. And the problem is not that any one of these things is bad. The problem is they're all good, right? Like how, am I, how can I say to somebody, you know, it's really great what you're doing in South Sudan, but like people aren't really paying attention to that anymore. Like, no, I would never say that. 
But what I've realized is that it's incumbent upon me, it's incumbent upon us as a community to always be ever more attuned to God's specific calling for us, recognizing that we cannot engage all of the issues in the world. It would be prideful of us, right, to assume that we could solve all of these issues. That would probably be more about us than it would be about what God's calling us to do. We have to know, God, what are we called to this specific community and this particular place and this particular time? And we have to remain true to that calling. You've heard it said here before that we have local and global partners at Bethany, and it's our desire that these partnerships are deep, long-lasting, and mutually transformative. And I can tell you that will never happen if we're constantly bounced around by the next news story or the next organization that knocks on our door. It's not to say those aren't wonderful things. We just have to always be cognizant of where God is leading us. And I know that's true in our own lives as well. So, As we think about this this morning, I'd I'd like us to consider this, that we must first and foremost know our calling and know our purpose. And second, ask how do we then discern and remain true to this calling? We're all called for a purpose, but how do we know how to stay true to this calling? And this is why I believe Jesus withdrew to a solitary place for prayer on that third day. This brings us to the second point in your outline this morning, discovering intimacy, discovering our purpose. In just one verse, Luke 4.42, we read that Jesus went away to a solitary place, and then in the account in Mark 1, it adds that he prayed. Christ here models for us a habit of maintaining intimacy with God and a posture of humility before the Father that I believe is instructive for all of us as we seek, one, to know our calling, and then two, how to discern and stay true to that calling amidst the many presenting needs in our world. So with literally crowds of people, all with legitimate needs of their own, knocking at Jesus' door, his impulse is to withdraw to a place of solitude to experience intimacy with the Father. And it's upon experiencing this degree of intimacy that he's able to say, no, it's time to go, for I must continue to proclaim the kingdom of God throughout the land. Now, one of the things I'm blessed to do here at the church is, in my role, is to be the direct point of contact between us and many of our global partners. So we have three global partners, and one of those is Roble Alto Child Care Association in Costa Rica. So on a recent visit, when I was down there uh, talking with a woman, she's our point of contact with them, named Pamela Siana. She was up here speaking um, not long ago here at the church. And she was talking with me just about, you know, some of the hopes and the dreams of the organization, some of their struggles. And like many nonprofits, they continue to struggle with the reality of fundraising, right? You know this to be true. Many of you are probably involved with other nonprofits uh, as well. And the reality is this is a constant need. And so what they decided to do as an organization was invite a local consorting, uh, consulting group to come in and... Uh, help them just kind of analyze their current practice and see if there's anything else they could do to enhance the way they they go about fundraising. And so this consulting group comes in and they spend a few days and at the end of this, they gather the staff and they're saying to them, you know, the number one way and really our only advice to you for you to increase fundraising would be to consider taking the explicitly Christian mission aspects of your mission statement out because in doing so, you'd be uh, applicable for much more um, local government funding and federal funding. 
It's easy. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian organization. It doesn't mean you're not doing it in the name of Jesus. It just, you know, take these couple words out, and if you do that, you know, the money would just start flowing in. And knowing Pam, knowing Roblialto, I imagined what I thought would be their response, but what struck me as um, profound was the way that they came to that response. So Pam told me as a group, you know, they kind of just nodded along as they're listening to these consultants and their fancy presentation. And then they said, you know, thank you so much. We're going to spend some time. We're going to go and we're going to pray. We're going to have lunch and then we're going to come back and we'll tell you kind of if this is the direction we think we should go or not. So they do that. They go away. They pray. They come back. And then they all together, one at a time, they said, what did you hear from God? What did he tell you to do? And um, every single person said, no. We're not doing it. We're not taking Jesus out of our mission statement. No way. And I imagine, that's kind of what I imagine they were going to say. They're very, very passionate about that. But um, the reason they said they wouldn't do that is not simply this sort of traditional, like, we're a Christian organization. Rather, they said, it's not just that we care for children and their families because we read a Bible verse that said that we should do that, but rather, the very way in which they do their work, the way they care for families, the way they care for children is informed by who they understand Jesus to be. That apart from the way Christ embodies love, they have no roadmap for the way that they're supposed to do what they're supposed to do. And so for them, to divorce that from their, their mission statement would be um, to remove the essence of who they are. But beautifully, it was fostering this sort of, this intimacy, this impulse to go first to the Father that, that Roblialto, as a staff, recognized this is not our calling. We have to remain true to our calling. And miraculously, they've, they've done all right, I should say, funding-wise, um, better than all right. Now, again, fostering intimacy with the Father, this is critical towards both knowing our calling and then remaining true to it. So earlier this year, we were introduced as a community to the rule of life in a series entitled Sustainable Faith, Soil Care for the Soul. So you might recall this image um, up here on the screen that articulates six inhaling practices and six exhaling practices. And the, the design here is of listing out unique practices that would help us as a community foster this level of intimacy that I'm alluding to with the Father. And so um, if you've already written your rule of life, I would encourage you to take a look back at it. And this week, you know, we've got these resources online and ask the question, you know, in your current context, do you need to adjust anything? Um, are there certain practices that you might be called to invest more in or less in? Really the goal being that we are in the current context for our lives, breathing in Jesus in such a way that we're then able to breathe out the gifts that he's given us for his service to the world. If you've never done this before, I would encourage you this week, go online, check this out, and really take time to discern, like, is this perhaps a way that you might foster intimacy with the Lord? The point here is that if knowing our calling requires knowing Jesus, we have to take the time to encounter him. And the rule of life is a tool for us that helps us to foster intimacy with the Father and two, posture us in a place of humility such that we're able to hear his voice, be reminded of our call, and in the midst of all the competing voices of our world, find the strength to remain true to that call. Now, this brings us to the third point in our outline this morning, embodying Christ, encountering the kingdom. 
We've heard it said here at Bethany before that transformation happens as the result of our response to revelation. And we know from scripture that revelation comes to us in kind of three different ways. First, through God's creation, even the rocks and the trees are constantly crying out to God, testifying to his glory. Comes to us by way of the text in scripture and also by community or by the people of God. Us, right? We, the people of God, as the body of Christ, play a role in revealing Christ's nature to the world. And in so doing, we become agents of God's kingdom in the world today. And the beauty of this reality, that Christ reveals himself through creation, through the text, through us, is that the ways we experience Christ, the ways we encounter Christ, are as diverse as his creation. So different ethno-racial groups, different political groups, different people of countries of origin, different languages, all reveal the nature of Christ in unique ways. And throughout the course of this series, we'll see several examples of how God's people throughout the book of Luke encounter and embody Christ uniquely and the implications that these diverse and sort of dynamic encounters have for our lives together. But what's critical from our text this morning is this notion that despite the diversity of ways we can encounter Christ, it's intimacy with our creator that reminds us of who we are and that enables us to embody Christ's call in our lives for the world around us. Now, throughout Luke chapter 4, there's this really interesting um, kind of interplay between power dynamics that happens. So in Luke 4.39, Jesus displays God's power over weakness when he heals Simon's mother-in-law from sickness. In Luke 4.35, he displays God's liberating power um, over oppression when he rebukes the demon from the man. And then in Luke 4.44, Jesus demonstrates through intimacy with the Father power to remain true to his calling over this kind of reactionary state in which he would just simply be reacting to all the different voices vying for his attention. And what we see demonstrated here is that encounters with Christ remind us of our humble position as powerless apart from him. And this ushers us evermore into a sense of intimacy and greater dependence upon God that we might begin to appreciate that our call is to empower, to embody power and weakness and our own sense of weakness. Encounters with Christ reorient our sense of power around Christ himself and Christ in us, inviting us to exercise power for God's purposes in the world, especially amongst the least of these. Coming alongside the poor, overcoming oppression, and being a part of redeeming places of brokenness in the world. Some of you in the community uh, know this. In May, not long ago, I um, very unexpectedly lost my father. Uh, kind of ironically, um, my dad went in just weeks before this and, uh, to his oncologist where he celebrated five years cancer-free. And it was just days after this appointment that he began feeling a, a pain in his side. So I went back to the hospital and discovered that in the place of where his kidney had been removed, a tumor had begun to grow. And this tumor, this tumor was cancerous, and so uh, there was going to need to be an operation, and um, they weren't sure exactly how it was going to go, but, you know, ultimately the doctors decided, you know, that it's a clear path forward, and while every surgery is risky, um, you know, they're confident 
we can do this. And so um, he went in for surgery and uh, kind of one of the one in a million things happened where there were uh, significant complications following the surgery and my dad wound up in the ICU fully dependent on life support. And that's where he would spend the next three weeks, the last three weeks of his life. And um, me being my dad's um, one of two sons um, due to kind of complicated family dynamics, um, I was kind of the primary point of contact in the situation and um, I spent those three weeks with him at his bedside. And um, throughout that course of that time, there was one encounter that I'd like to share with you. And that is that um, we got to a place along the way where we realized to continue in this um, pattern of life support, my dad was not going to be able to enjoy the quality of life afterwards that he would have wanted. So I made the impossible decision at that time to unhook the life support and allow him the opportunity to go home. And um, just hours after we unhooked the life support, I'm there with my wife, Macy, and my dad's fiance and a couple other loved ones, and we're gathered around his bed, and um, it was as if, in a moment, my dad realized what was going on. And up to that point, he could open his eyes and kind of look around, but um, really the sense of, you know, not really aware of what's going on. But in this moment, his eyes opened, and he looked at us in the room, and it was like, in that moment, he realized, I'm awake from surgery, and I'm not where I think I should be, and I'm not doing okay. And in that moment, his fiance, she looked at me, and she said, Nathan, he looks scared. I can tell you, he did look scared. And I don't know whether it was God in me or whatever, came upon me, and I just got on my knees next to my dad, and I began to explain to him what was going on. Told him, this is what happened. This is where we are. It's too soon. It's not what any of us want. But God is here. And this is where you're going. And God's here to take you there. And as hard as it is to share this with you, the reason I do is that I, upon reflection, realized that in that moment, I was blessed to be a bridge in ways for my dad. A bridge between the sense of what is happening, profound fear, perhaps like where is God? He's out here somewhere. Like to, to, to in flesh and blood say to my dad, God is right here with us. He's right here. And I believe at a level, you know, we're all called to be bridges that by the power of the Spirit in us, we deconstruct false notions of God being somewhere out there and ourselves become physical manifestations of Christ's love in the world and flesh and blood, inviting others to intimate encounters with Christ. His love made a reality through us. The more we know Jesus, the more the world is going to know Jesus through us. Friends, this is how I believe the church becomes a testimony of the inbreaking kingdom of God. Not by creating an alternative social club or one of many other ways that people can experience community, but that by fostering a community of believers that gathered together and sent out to all the different areas of life that God has us, that we embody Christ evermore and that through us, people might encounter Jesus and encounter the kingdom 
The more we know Jesus, the more the world is going to know Jesus through us. As we prepare to move into a time of response and worship together, would like you would like to invite you to consider responding in two ways. The first is this. I'm going to pray in just a minute here and would like to invite you to consider the question that I've outlined at the bottom of your bulletin there. And that is, how might you be called to be a bridge, embodying a characteristic of Christ to a specific person or in a specific situation? So take a minute, if you would, and fill that out. I'm called to be a bridge, embodying Christ's peace to my family, embodying Christ's love to my coworkers, embodying Christ's hospitality to refugees. How are you being called to embody Christ in your context? And secondly, once you've taken a moment to prayerfully consider that, we invite you to just rip that off and bring it forward. At 8 o'clock, people came up here, and if you would, just toss that piece of paper down as, as, as a prayer to the Lord, and in doing that, would invite you to posture yourselves uh, in a place of humility, recognizing that it's, we totally depend on God for who we are, that in the midst of our weakness, God's power is evident through us. There's nothing magic about getting on your knees or anything like that, but in doing that, might we as a community kind of demonstrate this habit of coming to the Lord to encounter him intimately such that we might embody him ever more to the world around us. So if you would, rip that off, bring it forward, even consider getting on your knees, take a moment and pray, ask that you might encounter God in our moments together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as your sons and daughters, we come before you just grateful that you're our Father, that you love us so much. And Lord, we do, we, we love you too. We thank you, God, for the call that we have to be a church that embodies your very presence in this world as individuals in all the places you've called us to and as a gathered community here at Bethany that we might testify evermore to your justice, your love, your peace, your joy in the world. God, it all starts by encountering you. We ask in these moments of worship, Lord, that they might be true moments of encounter, that we might be filled to be poured out again as rivers of living water to our world. We pray now, Jesus, meet us here. In Christ's name, amen. Let's worship.